A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to Radio tips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, we explore the wide world of beans with The Washington Post, Joe Yonan. We chat about beans for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and also dessert. Plus, we discover the early lessons Yonan learned about shopping on a budget and the joys of cooking for one. If you're cooking for yourself, you don't have to answer to anyone else's palate or their mood or their dietary restrictions. You can kind of follow your own cravings wherever they take you in the kitchen. Because after all, like, you're only trying to please yourself. Also coming up, we make Palestinian upside-down chicken and rice. And later, Dr. Aaron Carroll asks, is diet soda actually bad for us? But first up today, it's my interview with Tova Donovich about her article, The Dangerously Cheesy Collectible Cheetos Market. Tova, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to talk about collectible Cheetos. (laughs) Not a subject that's on my mind very much. So give me a couple examples of ridiculously priced Cheetos. And we're talking about Cheetos that have shapes that people recognize. 
Cheetos in the shape of unicorns and the Statue of Liberty. Uh, what are some of the eBay examples for this? So the most famous eBay example is from 2017, and I think it kind of kicked off this whole craze. It's the Harambe Cheeto, um, which was sold just after Harambe, the gorilla, um, as people might recall, kind of tragically was killed after a child fell into the gorilla's enclosure at the zoo. And someone very soon afterward found a Cheeto that was shaped a lot like a gorilla, put it up for sale for a price of $11.99 starting offer, um, and it just kept climbing. Finally, the official sold price was $99,900 for this Cheeto, which of course made pretty big news. But more regularly, you'll find Cheetos for sale, you know, a Donald Trump for $800, um, a I think I just saw a Baby Yoda Cheeto earlier today that was being sold for a couple hundred. A lot of pop culture and a lot of animals, and you can find them for sale for anywhere from $1 to tens of thousands. So how do you know whether those sales are consummated? Because you talk about this. eBay only tells you what the final bid and accepted offer was, but you don't know if money changed hands. So being a skeptical person as I am— I don't think there's any (laughs) chance that someone spent $99,999 on a Cheeto shaped as a uh, gorilla. Is there any way of knowing whether these things actually do sell? There's really not, which is one of the things that became really fascinating to me about the topic. People report on these astronomical sales of Cheetos. And eBay, if you look at, you know, recently sold uh, Cheetos that they have on the website, you can often find that same Cheeto relisted by the buyer, which to me proves that that Cheeto has not actually been sold. Um, So you might have someone that's supposedly bought a Cheeto like the Harambe Cheeto for $99,000, but there were hundreds of offers on that Cheeto. So without speaking to the seller, we don't actually know how much, if anything, it sold for. Um, And eBay basically goes down the list of highest bidders until money actually changes hands. Well, I have some examples here. You know, the one shaped like Clifford, the big red dog for $99.99. And it it kind of just looks like a Cheeto. Um, there's yeah. the uh, the crab claw from Mr. Krabs, right? SpongeBob SquarePants. And I guess it does look a little like a lobster claw, but uh, that's listed for $3,500. Yeah. You know, so some of these are, uh, you have to have some imagination to get from the edible junk food to the realm of art or, or representing something else. Um, but I guess that doesn't really matter. It's, you know, if you tell people what it looks like, they'll think it looks like it. Yeah, well, you know, humans have such a long history of seeing shapes in objects, whether or not everyone else in the world agrees that that's what it looked like. We have, you know, the Jesus toast, the Virgin Mary on a tortilla. Most of us, when we were children, like to look up at clouds um, and see, you know, there's a dog, there's a castle, there's my mom up in a cloud. And not everyone's going to see the same thing, but it doesn't mean that you can't gather a shape out of those amorphous blobs. Except I'd point out the clouds are free. but It's true. Clouds are free. Um, no, I, I, I take your point. But what's really going on here? Because I know on one hand, Frito-Lay saw this going on and decided to create a Cheetos Museum and they, they with prizes. And they've used this to their advantage. Why do you think Cheetos have now risen to the level of cultural icon? I think some of it is a bit of a self-perpetuating phenomenon. So as 
we see more Cheetos, we get more excited about Cheetos. But on the other hand, it is a little bit fun to just take a minute sometimes and pause between the bag and your hand and take a look at the Cheeto and see if it's shaped like something, which is often how a lot Mm. of the sellers that I talk to wound up finding the Cheeto that they then placed for sale. So did you ever get the urge when you did the research on this to start trading collectible Cheetos? You know, I did try because I just wanted to know how hard is it actually to find a shape in a Cheeto. Um, When I started off, I was a little bit um, jaded, I suppose, or (laughs) blasé about, you know, surely everyone is just getting tons of shaped Cheetos all the time in every bag. This is no big deal. It's not nearly as unique or rare as the eBay selling uh, titles always call their Cheetos. So I sat down with my husband. We got an eight and a half ounce, one of the smaller bags of Flaming Hot Cheetos, sat at the table, and we both went through them looking at every single piece. We found a lot of walking sticks. One thing that maybe looked like a race car if you squint a little bit and nothing else at all. Um, There were 346 Cheetos before they got to be such small bits that we didn't feel like we could count them as Cheetos anymore in the bag. And there was nothing of note at all. So I had a little bit more respect after that, I have to say, for the people that actually find good ones. Tell me, did you also, when you interview people for this uh, article, did you come across any really interesting people who had sort of an interesting backstory? There were a lot of very colorful characters um, that came up in this piece. Um, There were a couple of people that I spoke with that seemed very sure about the worth of their Cheeto and that this Cheeto... Definitely, you know, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe a year from now, it will get $2,000 from someone. I think some of the funniest stories to me actually came from listening to how people were storing their Cheetos while they were waiting for their windfall to come in when they sell it. Um, In a lot of cases, there's a Cheeto in a glass jar somewhere on a shelf out of the way where it's not going to get knocked or squished accidentally. Um, one man I spoke with had it very lovingly wrapped and placed inside of his safe along with all of his very important documents, partially so it wouldn't get eaten by his grandchildren, um, hmm. but also just for safekeeping because you never know. It's, it's like buying a lottery ticket you know, with your cup of coffee in the morning. Uh, maybe someday you will strike it rich. And maybe that's what this is about. Maybe it's about someday your ship will come in, right, with a with a gorilla-shaped Cheeto. Yeah, I think that there's hope mixed with the idea that we don't know what everyone wants to spend their money on. And maybe at the end of the day, it's going to be a Cheeto shaped like Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob. Well, there's a straight line from the Campbell soup can in the 60s, Andy Warhol, to the $100,000 uh, gorilla Cheeto. Definitely. Telva, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. Thanks for having me. That was Tova Donovich. Her article for The Outline is called The Dangerously Cheesy Collectible Cheetos Market. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few of your questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, how are you? Chris, I'm good. I, I think it's time to take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Joe. I'm calling from Bozeman, Montana. How can we help you? Well, I'm calling to see if you can uh, help resolve an argument I'm having with my roommates. <laughs> okay. 
I own all the kitchen knives in the house, and my roommates use them to cook, which, of course, is fine. But then they always put them in the dishwasher. Oh, Lord. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the answer is no, no, no. You need new roommates. No. Okay. <laughs> Under no circumstances ever. I heartily agree. I mean, unless you get a $12 knife, you know, you don't really care. But no, you don't want to do it. Never. What kind of knives are these? Are they expensive, inexpensive? A little bit of both. My, you know, main, like, chef knife that I use, as well as my bread knife, are, are fairly expensive. They're nice, high-quality knives. I think the rest of them probably came from Kmart in about 1984, but <laughs> they're what I've got. Chris, tell him why it's a bad idea. Well, what happens is the finish is going to get ruined, because dishwasher detergent is pretty rough, and the heat's high. Okay. And so when you lose that finish, even with a stainless steel or high-carbon steel knife— you will start to see blotches and rust occur. It's terrible for the blade as well, for the sharpened edge. Um, yeah. so, it can get jostled around yeah. and dulled like crazy. China is one of the worst things that a knife should ever touch. You can dull your knife like crazy if you ever chop on a China but, plate. But I would say if you have you know, your inexpensive 10 or $20 knives and they've been around a long time and you have a good knife sharpener, you know, you mm-hmm. can probably survive. But if you get a $50 or $100 knife, please don't. Also, sure. if you have, like, Japanese knives, for example, which mm-hmm. will rust, some of them are not full stainless. And those, that would be a disaster. And some of them are in between hard carbon stainless and stainless. And you have to really take care of those. So I would say under 20 bucks, whatever. But if it's a nice <laughs> knife and you really care about the edge... No. Well, and here's the other thing. How difficult is it to clean a knife? It's not like a crusted pot. So just use really hot water and lots of soap and you're fine. Tell your roommates they're so wrong. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the problem with roommates, whether you're married to a roommate or they're just your roommates, is you have to pick your fights, right? Yeah. So this is a fight you need to pick. And you just want it. Yeah, you can't lose this one. No. No. I'm glad to hear that because every time I ask them to not put my knives in a dishwasher, they just look at me like I'm from Mars. So I was just calling to make sure that I wasn't going crazy, that this is actually sound advice. Well, and don't also put any wooden no. s- spatulas, spoons, <laughs> handles, cutting boards. Uh, please oh, don't yeah. put them in because they'll warp. No. They'll warp. And you'll also lose mm-hmm. the finish. And yeah. So, no. I mean, you can have your roommates call us. We're happy to talk to them. Right. But if you, <laughs> if you ask absolutely any chef, they would yeah. say the same thing. If you went to absolutely. a store where they sell knives, the people who sell knives would say the same thing. There is absolutely nobody else except your roommates who thinks this is a good idea. Joe, thanks for calling. Yes, Joe. Give your roommates our number. We'll talk to them. Yeah, we will. I will do that. Thank you so much for your help. Yeah, okay, my pleasure. Joe. All right. All righty. Take care. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is Amy. Hi, Amy. Where are you calling from? Memphis. Lovely town. How can we help you? Well, I had talked to you a while back about trying to make some banana bread, and I wasn't having much luck. It would get soupy sort of in the middle oh, and right. burned on the right. outside. Right. And we talked about the kind of pan you used. And, and how and to measure the bananas. It should be cups, not bananas. And tell us what you did. So I found a recipe that had cup measurements, and I made that one in my Emile Henri pan, and it still was a little too dark on the bottom but it cooked more in the middle, on the top. Recently, I made the Joy of Cooking recipe, uh-huh. and it turned out great, but it almost is more like a sweet bread than a banana bread. But it cooked really well, and it looks beautiful, but it's not super banana-y. It doesn't have that dense texture that it should have. 
So that's where I am now. Well, I remember two things we said. Reduce your oven temperature and then just use a light-colored aluminum pan, not the Emile Henri. Did you switch out pans and reduce the oven? Did you try those? I reduced the oven yeah. on the second one. I didn't switch to the aluminum pan. I stuck with my Emile Henri pan. I forgot about that part. Did the lower oven help? Yes. I don't think it's the amount of bananas. I think it's the pan and the oven temperature that are the, I agree. the most likely culprits here. I mean, one and a half bananas doesn't sound like... Versus two. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's going to make a big difference. You want, you know, so, you want ma- major banana flavor here, right? Yes. What's the point? So could I put more banana in it? It calls for one or two eggs also, which I thought was odd. And how much flour? Two and three quarters cups. Sounds right. And what does it say for bananas? It said one and a half bananas. You know what? I think with almost three cups of flour, you could go with three bananas, medium-sized bananas that are very ripe. These are very ripe bananas, Yeah, that was right? my other question. Yes, yeah. they were all black. i go with three bananas. I would lower the oven temperature, use an aluminum, light aluminum pan. I don't think it's okay. the bananas. That okay. should solve it. And there's no point making banana bread unless it tastes like bananas. Exactly. I agree. That was kind of my thought. I'm still eating it, though, but... Well, of course. I'm not going to throw out any loaf bread, (laughs) even if it doesn't taste Mm -hmm. like bananas. All right, give that a shot and uh, let us know. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, just give me a ring at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, my name is Galen. I'm calling from Cambridge. How can we help you? So I uh, make a carrot cake for my brother's birthday every year, and I get the recipe from the Silver Palette cookbook, and it's a family favorite. But as I was making it this year, I started to wonder about one of the steps, and it's the part where it calls for preparing the carrots by cooking them. What? And then pureeing them. Isn't that, I've never heard of cooking carrots Me neither. for carrot cake. Me neither. And neither had I. I don't get why someone would do I, that. I wouldn't either. It sounds very weird, but we have to go back to what he said in the beginning. Galen, you said your family loves it. Yeah, and so this, and actually, I made the cake, and I decided that I would fiddle around with it, uh, uh-huh. because I wanted to have uh, two things to provide you with for comparison, and I ended up making it by just grating the carrots and, and? grating them raw. I didn't have any issue. It didn't seem like there was any difference at all um, that anyone noticed. My brother's only comment was that the sponge was very dense, which for this cake recipe it normally is. And I wasn't sure if that had anything to do with it. And I was also wondering if there was anything that would affect the taste in terms of cooked carrots versus raw grated carrots. I do know that grating carrots releases the flavor like in a salad, if you grate a root vegetable, it releases a lot of the flavor. You get a lot more flavor that way. So maybe that you would get more flavor than cooking them. Okay. If you can grate them instead of cooking them. It just makes your life easier. It makes your life easier. If and nobody my guess noticed is the difference. Oh, absolutely. How much of pureed carrots versus how much of grated carrots? Did you do it cup for cup, whatever it was? I did it by weight just to see what happened. I put carrots whole on a scale using what I found on the King Arthur website in terms of conversion ratios oh. for cups of carrots to wow. the amount it weighed. You were very uh, sophisticated. Yeah, that, that's pretty good. <laughs> you said it was a little denser, did you say, the crumb? It 
was, yeah. Um, but otherwise, I mean, the cake, it rose fine. Uh, it's a very sweet cake as it is. Um, right. And actually, I follow some of your advice, Chris, about cutting out some of the sugar. If it's a single batch, it's three cups of flour, three cups of sugar. What? More than a cup of corn oil, sweetened coconut, pineapple. I would say somebody was smoking something when they came up with this <laughs> recipe. I mean, equal amounts of flour and sugar and cooking the carrots. I uh, Strange. I would say if nobody's really paying attention or notices the difference, yeah. shred them. Shred them. Yeah. Now, did you take the sugar down? I did. Oh, absolutely. Good. I cut it to like a cup and three quarters if I was doing a single batch instead of three cups. Yeah, there you it go. Was very moist. It was still yeah. incredibly sweet. Yeah, well. I think Galen wants a job at Milk Street. He's very methodical. I think he just got one. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That was very good. I like the research yeah. and the weighing and the conversion. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> it's a great cookbook, but maybe once in a while. Yeah. Worth tinkering. Worth yes. tinkering. Yes. Good job. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank Take you, care, Sarah. Galen. Okay. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we hear from The Washington Post Joe Yonan about his new book, Cool Beans. That's coming up after the break. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Most Jay Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with a food and dining editor of the Washington Post. His name is Joe Yonan. He's also the author of Eat Your Vegetables and Serve Yourself. His latest book is called Cool Beans. Joe Yonan, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. Um, we've met a few times over the years, but we've never actually discussed the topic of beans. That's right. <laughs> um, but let's talk about you to start with. Okay. There were some interesting stories, especially... When your mother, when you were eight, uh, lost her privileges in the commissary at the Air Force Base, and you had to do the shopping because the children still had got the discount. So could you tell that story? Because it tells a lot about you and also about why you might like something like beans. Yeah, I, I am the youngest of seven kids, and my mother, when my parents got divorced, she was really upset to find out that she couldn't go to her beloved discount 
commissary on the Air Force Base where she was able to feed the family at a much lower price. And so, yeah, she discovered this loophole. And every week she gave me a list and gave me cash. And we had a deal. If I could buy everything on the list and come in under budget, I could buy something for myself. So Hmm. I went and uh, I had this little red hand counter clicker thing um, (laughs) that I carried with me and I added up the groceries as I went because, of course, the last thing I wanted to do was not come under budget and not be able to buy something. But I also didn't want to be embarrassed and go over, have to put some things back. But what it did was it really taught me how to comparison shop. You know, I was deciding between brands and When we got home and she was using those foods, I pretty quickly then got interested in what happened to them in the kitchen. Okay, Beans, um, I got lots of questions for you. Okay. Uh, You have a great quote. Allah says that the little navy bean will make you live, just eat them. Where does that come from? (laughs) Um, Yeah, that comes from Elijah Muhammad's book. And I use it when I'm talking about a unfortunately lesser known dessert which is the Nation of Islam's navy bean pie. Hmm. So this is something that in a lot of, of cities with a, with a large Nation of Islam population, you'll find even sold on the street. And they're really great. And it's, you know, traditionally pureed navy beans, eggs, milk, sugar, butter, flour, spices, you know, kind of custardy. And, and, and they're really delicious. And it's not something that you taste and go, Oh, you know, I'm eating navy beans. I mean, it tastes a little bit like a chess pie. So it's got to be pretty sweet if it's a chess pie, right? It's pretty sweet. It's pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah. I have a riff on it in the book. I veganized it um, and turned it into this coconut cream bean pie, which is kind of fun. You were in Mexico City years ago, and you talked about this wonderful bean soup at uh, Maximo. Is that that still there, and they still make that soup? And just, just describe the soup because it sounded great. Oh man, it's just it's just incredible. The the chef Lalo Garcia also has a place called Lalo's. But yeah, when I went and he talked about these special beans that he got from this, you know, one region of Mexico and I needed to really try them and they were just so plump and creamy and the soup was both really one of those things that tastes so simple and yet almost elemental <laughs> in its appeal. It's just the depth of flavor. It's, it's fantastic. And the way he cooks it, it's very interesting. He cooks the beans initially kind of slowly to get them tender, and then he boils them very vigorously for hmm. another half an hour. And I'm, I'm looking at this recipe, and I'm like, well, I'm going to try it. You know, it seems like awfully aggressive to be boiling these beans down. But honestly, it just concentrated the broth, and they were spectacular. And then then you just add a simple pico de gallo to them at the end. You know a lot about cooking beans, and you have a different way of thinking about it. Most of us, if you say beans, you go bean soup, uh, Mm. you know, maybe baked beans, you know, three bean salad or something. Right, right. Always three beans. Yeah, I don't know why is that four, too. There's something magic about three beans. (laughs) Right. Um, Give me a few examples of a common road to go down. What, mm-hmm. what, what are the three or four possibilities that come to mind that are fairly simple to do? Yeah, well, I mean, first, one of the things I really like to do is just cook the pot the way I'm going to cook it with fairly simple seasonings. And I do this, you know, really every weekend I cook a pot of beans. 
and then I've got it and then I can use it in all sorts of ways. I really love the combination of beans and greens, you know, white beans and bitter greens over toast. Mm. You know, then of course on day three or four, the beans are cold in your fridge. And so, yes, you might want to just strain the beans, keeping that liquid and then using those beans in, in some kind of salad. You know, there's one in there that's sort of an adaptation of something that my mother used to make that is chopped romaine salad and beans and fried tortillas and feta. Um, And I use these slow roasted tomatoes on it, and that's really delicious. And then at a certain point, usually for me, when I'm getting toward the end of the beans life, I start thinking about purees. So either a pureed soup or certainly beans are incredible as dips. You know, a black bean dip is a glorious thing and you can spice it up in all sorts of different ways. So those are those are some of the things that I typically do. Um, you made a, a conversion to vegetarian or vegan. Uh, mm-hmm. I think vegan, right? Vegetarian. Um, vegetarian, vegetarian actually, okay. Yeah. I'm about 80% vegan, I'd say. So in making that transition, what cooking techniques did you adopt or learn to make your cooking really mm. satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, are, are there different ways mm-hmm. of thinking about standing in front of the stove that you didn't have 10 years ago? Yeah, yeah. It's so that's a that's a really good question, Chris. I mean, you know, when I first started declaring vegetarianism, I was falling back on cheese a lot and certainly on eggs, right? It's the old put an egg on it uh, habit. Um, but I think that what I do now that I didn't do 10 years ago is really pay attention to texture. You know, usually with meat, there's a variety of textures in a piece of meat when you roast it. And I think people lost sight of the fact that they need to be thinking about that when they cook vegetables, too. When I say texture, I don't necessarily mean, you know, always making sure that there's firm texture. I love smooth texture and creamy texture things, too. Um, I just try to have a variety of textures and think about textures now a lot more than when I was cooking meat because so much of it just came naturally. What what about boiling versus steaming? Uh, Jose Andres was on the show a couple months ago, and he says he often, like he did when he was, you know, his parents did when he was young, he just boil up a bunch of vegetables and throw them on a plate with some oil and salt and pepper, and he loves it. And he he doesn't seem to be worried about, well, steaming is more healthy than boiling. Where, Where do you stand? I think there's place for boiling. Yeah, yeah, it's fast. It can be delicious. You know, I think people do get caught up in, as you said, the most nutritious ways to cook vegetables. And certainly when you're boiling vegetables, a lot of the nutrition stays in the boiling liquid. But you can also use some of that cooking water in the dish, you know, if you're if you're boiling and then mashing something. You know, he also, when Jose says boiling, he often means he's using a much smaller amount of water than you might think. Like he's he's almost half steaming them sometimes, I think. And then you can reduce that liquid down, you know, into a glaze too. And if you're consuming that liquid, then the nutritional difference is gone. You know, we talked about the coconut cream bean pie earlier. Are there other recipes in your book that are real outliers? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, there's a really fun bean ceviche from South America. Yeah, I had that written down. Now, yeah. what now what is a I mean really, what is a bean ceviche? Isn't that cool? I mean, it's so this one uses lupini beans and these are the beans that you see in Italian markets that are pickled and they're delicious and you pop them out of the skins and they're they're these delicious little tart snacks. And so this ceviche 
uses those instead of fish. And they're Ecuadorian and they're they're actually really cool and they're traditional there, which I thought I thought was so interesting. You know, something that it seems like it's this modern reinterpretation of a fish ceviche, but it's actually it's actually traditional. So you combine them with onion, tomato, and citrus juice and herbs, a little tomato paste, and then it's traditionally garnished the way a lot of South American ceviches are garnished with corn nuts. There's a little avocado in there. It's totally interesting, and and it's really delicious. So you also, you had this great thing about cooking for yourself Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, did a book on that. And people would ask you, why should I go all the trouble to cook dinner for one? And your answer is, well, you're the most important person to cook for, which I thought was, you know, that was a pretty good answer, right? Oh, thanks. Yeah, I just, I really felt that people needed to realize that they're worth taking care of. And I always thought if you're cooking for yourself, you don't have to answer to anyone else's palate or their mood or their dietary restrictions. You can kind of follow your own cravings wherever they take you in the kitchen too, which is, I think, really wonderful if you're someone who enjoys cooking and you can uh, sort of improvise a little more easily because after all, like, you know, you're only trying to please yourself. So if you know that you like spicy food, you can make it a little extra spicy. If you feel that day that, you know, you've been indulging too much and you want something a little leaner, you can just sort of instinctively make it a little bit leaner. It sort of reminds me of traveling alone. You know, you wake up in the morning, you wake up every day and your schedule is your own. And it feels that way, I think, in the kitchen when you're cooking for yourself too, or it can if you let it. Joe Yonan, it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you. Thanks so much, Chris. I loved it. That was Joe Yonan. His new book is called Cool Beans: 125 Recipes for the World's Most Versatile Plant-Based Protein. You know, beans are essential to most cuisines, from chickpeas in the Middle East to lentils in India to black beans, of course, in Mexico. Yet the Brits might just get a blue ribbon for putting beans on almost anything. Beans on toast, shepherd's pie with beans, cheesy beans on chips, beans on pizza, baked beans and pasta. And finally, Yorkshire pudding filled with beans and cheese. What this tells us about traditional British cooking is that it requires first a strong stomach and second a sense of humor. Jellied eel and haggis on one hand and stargazy pie on the other. This is a macabre Cornish dish of eggs, potatoes and sardines whose heads jut out of the crust gazing up at the diners. Now, that's a culture that knows how to have fun with its food. It's time to head into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Palestinian upside-down chicken and rice. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. I was recently in Galilee, uh, which is about an hour and a half drive from Tel Aviv. I mean, Tel Aviv is a modern, young, really cool city. And Galilee, obviously has thousands of years of history. Uh, it's mostly desert, uh, occasionally irrigated, towns on the sides of hills, obviously a lot of history there. And the food is amazing. So I went to visit Reem Kassiz. She's author of The Palestinian Table, one of our favorite books, at her family's home. And, of course, they made a feast. It was how nice of them. And one of the dishes was an upside-down chicken and rice. She flips it onto this large silver platter, takes the pot off, and you have this amazing, beautiful upside-down chicken and rice. That's right, Chris. It's actually a great one-pot dish, and it's really not that much work, but 
I have to say, when I see Ream flip it out, I get really nervous it's going to go all over the place. So what we did when we created our recipe was kind of add a little bit of insurance to make sure that that is not going to happen to you. So the first thing we do is prep a pot. And you want to use a lighter weight pot rather than a heavy cast iron Dutch oven because you're going to flip it out and it's pretty heavy. And we line the bottom of that with a piece of parchment. And that allows us to get a crispy crust on the bottom, which is kind of a signature of this dish, without it sticking when you flip it out and hence going everywhere. Okay, so do we pre-cook the rice? No, we're going to rinse and soak the rice. It goes in raw. We actually split it in half and each one is a layer of this rice. So we add slivered almonds to one, and that's the first layer. That's that crispy layer that you get. And then to the other, we add cauliflower, some melted butter, garlic, and some warm spices. And then that's layer number two. So the next part is the chicken. We're using bone-in, skin-on chicken thighs that we pre-sear to get a little bit of browning. We nestle them into the rice. Then we add some sliced eggplant, some chicken broth, another piece of parchment, and cover it and cook it on the stovetop for about 40 minutes. So this is not an oven recipe, this is a stovetop recipe? This is a stovetop recipe. And then we take it off the heat, uncover it, and let it sit for 15 minutes. And that's going to firm it up a little bit so that the flipping out will be a little bit easier. So when you flipped it over, was it a disaster? No, it worked perfectly. Of course. So we flip it out onto a platter, and again, you want to have a nice lightweight pot for this. And then don't take the pot away. Leave the pot there for about 10 minutes. And again, that will keep it kind of tight in there so that when you finally do the big reveal, it'll stay put. So one of my favorite sort of feast recipes from Galilee, an upside-down chicken and rice, takes less than an hour, and it's great for a whole crowd. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for Palestinian upside-down chicken and rice at MilkStreetRadio.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. That's coming up after the break. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Most Jade Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Up next, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Emily. Hi, Emily. Where are you calling from? I am calling from Brooklyn, New York. How can we help you today? So I have a question about ground meat. I'm used to using the ground meat that comes in a styrofoam tray, whether it's ground turkey or beef or pork. But I've noticed a lot of companies are starting to package it in the, uh, I guess it's vacuum sealed. Right. And it's really compact, especially if it's grass-fed beef. 
So when I'm making something like meatballs or burgers, instead of trying to form the meat, it feels like I'm trying to pull it apart <laughs> and add a little bit of air back into it. So I'm curious if you have any recommendations. Well, actually, two comments. One is that grass-fed beef is a lot leaner mm-hmm. than, you know, the other beef that's finished on grain. You know, that might have an effect in the end result, not the raw result, but the end result in terms of moisture. And you're mm-hmm. not complaining about that. You're just complaining about shaping it. But, you know, I wonder if you're a fan of grass-fed beef and you don't like the way it's ground, and I often do this myself anyway, buy a different piece of meat. Buy a whole piece of meat, whatever it is, grass-fed, mm. that appeals to you. Shoulder's always a good place to go. Chuck, they don't call it chuck. They usually call it shoulder if they're going to sell you steaks or anything. Cut it into cubes, freeze it for 30 minutes, and then pulse it in your food processor until you like the way it looks. If you had a grinder, do that, and then you can control the grind. And then you have much more control over it from start to finish. I often grind my own meat for that reason. I also want to know what went into it. I think grass-fed, you're pretty safe, but um, stuff you buy at the supermarket, you don't always know. Well, you can do the same thing with pre-ground. We did this for a recipe for Cuban burgers. We partially froze the meat, I think, 15 minutes on a tray in the freezer. Mm -hmm. And then we use forks to kind of loosen the texture up, which works if you partially freeze it. So you're talking about meat that was already ground. Yeah, pre-ground beef. And then you freeze it on a tray for 15 minutes. Just put it out on a baking tray. And Mm -hmm. then use forks and start to loosen up the texture. And that helped. But, Ah. But why would you do that? Because the cryovac beef you get is so dense, which she was complaining about. So the exact same so problem. So you, you get a better, you get a looser texture. Interesting. So it's not that the grind is actually finer on cryovac beef. It's that it's, it's been compressed. P- compressed. Okay. And then also when you form the burger, if you pull it apart like that and form it gently, you don't compress mm-hmm. it too much. That also helps too. Because if a lot of burgers are great if you don't press the meat too much together. That's just a quick fix, but that might work. Huh. Alrighty then. great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank yeah, you, give Emily. a shot. Thanks, Emily. Okay. Have a good one. This is Most Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a call, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Steve from Hopewell, New Jersey. How can we help you? I have a question about peeling garlic. Sometimes I get a head of garlic and the cloves all peel beautifully and it's nice and easy. The skin pops right off. And sometimes I get a head of garlic and the skin does not want to come off. It's frustrating. It just sticks to the clove. And I'm wondering if, is there a way to tell ahead of time when you're buying garlic, whether you're going to get easy peel or hard peel garlic? That's an excellent question. This reminds me of the hard boiled egg (laughs) conundrum. As far as I know, no. A couple tricks, though. I would uh, use the flat side of a knife and just flatten it a little bit. And the other thing you can do, it takes a little more time to just cut off the root end of the clove. That also helps as well. But if you do those two things, you should be able to get the skin off pretty quickly. Actually, I think the bigger issue when you're buying garlic is not whether it will be easy to peel. It will be whether it's fresh. So what you're looking for when you pick garlic is firm, round, cloves that uh i can i can tell you it i won't mention the name of the chain but the place i often shop i would say half the heads or more are rotten rotten like moldy really inside sprouted well yeah soft and so i agree with sarah 
Do you flatten the clove with the side of a knife? Sometimes I do. It depends if I want nice whole slices or not. Well, the other thing, I hate to suggest this, but our kitchen has found that pre-peeled garlic cloves, which I know, I know, I've been against it my whole life. And uh, it turns out, actually, in a blind tasting, sometimes you can't really tell a big difference. Hmm. So I know, I know, Sarah. I'm not happy about I know that you're one. not happy, but no. if you go through a lot of garlic, that's not the worst thing in the world. Right. And how often do you want to leave them whole, Steve? You said because you want to slice them? Yeah, not that often, but once in a while. You know, the other thing you can do is a quick blanch, boiling water, cold water, then they should be much easier to peel. That's another thought. Of course, they'll be slightly cooked. Also, you know, hard neck garlic is... But that's hard to find except at farmer's easier markets. Easier to peel. Yeah. So, yeah. It's got a thicker skin. Yeah, which comes off easier. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. All right, so, Steve. Take care. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Carly, and here's my tip. If you're making a dish that has both mashed potatoes and gravy... Make some extra gravy, and instead of using milk and butter to make your mashed potatoes, use the gravy instead. It adds some extra flavor and richness and makes the whole dish come together. Enjoy! If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radiotips. Next up, it's time to hear from Dr. Aaron Carroll. Dr. Aaron Carroll, what's on your mind this week? So I thought we might talk a bit about some of the reasons that we're never going to stop arguing about something like diet soda and whether it's going to kill us or not. <laughs> that's, that's a cheerful thought. <laughs> yeah, well, no, the good news is, look, look, everyone's going to die someday, but the good news is it's very, 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 very unlikely that the diet soda is going to be what kills you, regardless, you know, of what you read in the paper. And the reason I wanted to talk about this was because I, I just can't believe how often it is I turn to the news and there's just another study that's out there that's either proclaiming that, you know, diet soda is going to be the end of us or trying to say maybe it's not such a big deal. But we don't ever get any closer to ending that argument. We just keep having it over and over and over again. And I thought we might talk about why that is. Yeah, I, I'm fascinated. So first, I think, you know, it's important to realize, like, there's a belief among in, in the United States and the world, for that matter, that if something is artificial, it's got to be bad. And therefore, you know, diet soda, it's made in a lab. It's not something that occurs naturally. Therefore, it has to be incredibly bad for us and it's going to kill us. And of course, the cynical thing to say there is that everything's a chemical. You know, water we could call dihydrogen monoxide. We don't. We call it water. Everything's a chemical. And just because something's a chemical doesn't mean it's bad. But still, people freak out about it. But of course, you know, sugar is natural. And everybody knows that sugared sodas are terrible. So it's not as if just because something is natural, meaning it's fructose or glucose, that it's going to be good for you. The second thing is I think, you know, soda is an easy target. People argue we don't need something like diet soda. So why not just get rid of it? It's, it's, it's unhealthy. We don't need it. Well, of course, there's tons of stuff you don't need. You don't need ice cream. You don't need pie. You don't need scotch, but lots of people like those things. And if you're willing to accept that, you know, not everything comes with zero risk, but these risks are incredibly, incredibly small if they exist at all, then it's perfectly fine to do it. The bigger reasons, though, that I think we're going to argue about this forever have to do with the way science works. You know, scientists have to publish 
to keep their jobs. I'm, I'm a tenure-track professor at Indiana University School of Medicine, and they expect me to produce research. They expect me to get grants. In order to get grants, I have to publish papers. And, you know, sometimes the easiest thing to do, especially in one's career, is to take a big data set and look in there to see, can I find a health problem? Can I find something that people are doing? And can I check to see if there's a correlation between those two things? Nowhere is this more rampant than in nutrition research, where I can't tell how many times even you and I have discussed another study where they do an analysis and they say, here's people eating something, here's a disease, can I show that there's a relationship? And of course, it's correlated, but that doesn't mean that it's causal. Could you just drill down on yeah. correlation versus causal and what you mean by that? Yeah. So if we have a big data set and we have lots of data on how many people have diseases and when they got them, and we also know theoretically what people might have been eating, you can run analyses to see, is there a statistical relationship between what people say they were eating and what diseases they got? And then you can say, okay, we've proven that this thing let's say drinking diet soda, is related to this other thing, let's say death. And therefore we say people who drank more diet soda were more likely to die earlier. But that doesn't mean that that one thing caused the other. It could be that people who drink diet soda don't exercise, and it's the don't exercising that right. killed them. Or it could be the people that drink a lot of diet soda also for some reason maybe are poorer or are more likely to have other diseases, and those things are related to death. It could be that people who are massively overweight are more likely to drink diet soda because they're on diets, and they're also more likely to die, and it's the overweight which is actually causing the problem. We haven't proven that diet soda causes it. It's just it's just related to it. So why is it, I, I always have this question for you, why is it that correlated data, correlations, are still used or can be used in studies, it would seem to me you would never be able to eliminate all the other factors. So why, why is it okay to continue using that kind of study? Well, they're much easier to do. It's, it's much, 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 much easier to do an observational study where we can check correlation between what people eat and what are their outcomes than to actually try to do a randomized controlled trial of diet to right. say, if we feed you diet soda and we feed you diet soda, you know, what are the outcomes? Part of the problem is these outcomes are rare. You know, death, cancer, heart attacks, for all everyone's panic, they're very, very, very rare. And so trying to pick up a reasonable number in a couple-year period of doing right. a study to check if it gets different between groups is almost impossible. Right. The other thing is that observational data should be more hypothesis-generating. Like, we should say, okay, we think maybe there's a relationship between diet soda and death— Therefore, maybe we should do real trials to right. see, does diet soda cause death? There have been randomized controlled trials of artificial sweeteners and diet sodas to look for outcomes. Those don't show the same dangers that a lot of the observational trials do. Now, they're not perfect, but they don't make the news. You know, people are not as excited about hearing that something isn't dangerous as they are about hearing something is dangerous. But these studies are just the same things over and over and over again from the same institutions using the same kind of data sets telling us things that we already knew for the most part without providing any new information. And at some point, you know, a new study of 300,000 people isn't that much better than an old study of 200,000 people. But given the culture of science 
and given how we fund research and what people need in order to keep their jobs, and, and given the fact that the media operates along similar lines, that they need clicks and they need stories and they need people to pay attention, it's very unlikely that science is going to stop churning these things out. It's very unlikely that the news is going to stop covering them as breathlessly as they do. So the best that people can do is stop paying as much attention. I, I do have a question, though. There's always an economic incentive behind a lot of this, right? So who are the people who want us to believe that diet soda is bad for us? Well, I think, first of all, there's a massive scientific incentive. I mean, there are people who built their careers off of saying that this or that food is big or bad for you. It's how they get grants. It's how they continue to do studies. Again, turning these these studies out is a multi, multi-million dollar business. I'd also say that, you know, a lot of this research often gets funded by food groups who are doing things in opposition. You know, you will get water companies often, you know, trying to say we should drink water and therefore all of these other things are bad for us. Um, And so... You know, you got to follow the money a lot of the time to see who might be funding this work. But a lot of it, even if it's not a specific financial conflict of interest from industry, there's a significant financial incentive for scientists to churn this research out. There's a significant incentive for the media to cover it because it gets a lot of attention. People are going to tune in. It's going to be diet soda. And I'm going to be here to tell you it's not nearly as sure as they're going to lead you to believe. So, Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you. Although studies will come out from now until doomsday about why diet soda will kill you, they probably won't. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's the professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. He's also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. You know, I recently tweeted that artificial sweeteners have killed far fewer people than sugar and received, of course, the usual angry emails. Now, Dr. Carroll reminds us that corollary studies, what scientists use to attack artificial sweeteners, are, for the most part, nonsense. Let me give you some examples. From 2000 to 2009, per capita cheese consumption correlates with a number of people who died by becoming tangled in their bedsheets. As the divorce rate in Maine dropped, so did the per capita consumption of margarine. And the number of people who drowned after falling out of a fishing boat correlates with the marriage rate in Kentucky. By the way, we consume thousands of chemicals every day in millions of possible combinations, and so correlation studies are voodoo science at best. So for those of you who still want to believe the latest study and also want to stay married, I strongly suggest that you eat less margarine. After all, there is a correlation. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen, you can download Milk Street Radio on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find all of our recipes, browse our online store, or order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, Recipes That Will Change the Way You Cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. 
and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Bernal Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.